So I got home really, really late last night. So this might be a very unique Sunday because this could be the first Sunday where the pastor falls asleep during the sermon before you do. So it could be, you know, it could be kind of a special Sunday for you. (laughs) All right, well, if you were here with us last week, you know, we started with this very strange question, and it went like this. Freedom, love, community, the simple life, neighborliness, kindness. Is that what comes to your mind when you think of the Ten Commandments? And we said, you know, we've actually been, we've been told the wrong things about this. You know, when I grew up, it was this idea that God was up there just waiting to zap you with lightning bolts, and it's all about rules, and you better follow the rules or you're dead meat. And it was this whole kind of stressing thing. And it turns out that what the Ten Commandments really are are habits of behavior and habits of thought that lead to human flourishing. Habits of behavior, habits of thought that lead to the good life. And I want to tell you something. This is the truth. I live under less rules with less guilt and shame now that I became a Christian. So let me just say that again. Once I became a Christian, my life changed radically. And one of the primary ways that my life changed is I lived under far less rules, far less guilt, far less shame. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He says, listen, if men will not be governed by the Ten Commandments, they will be governed by 10,000 commandments. Some of you live by 10,000 commandments. I ought, should, must, mm, ah, mm. you're filled with guilt. You're running around like a nut. We make lousy gods. And when we become the god of our life, we just start making rules. We think that's the solution. Make a rule for this, make a rule. Some of you have rules about the most amazing things. Some of you have rules about how to roll the toothpaste. How much kale should be in your diet, Right? We come up with a thousand rules and we judge each other in a thousand different ways. We find a thousand different ways to judge each other. And so Chesterton is right. And he goes on to say this. The truth is, of course, that the curtness, so by that he means like the shortness, the brevity, the curtness of the Ten Commandments is an evidence not of the gloom and narrowness of a religion, but on the contrary, of its liberality and its humanity. It is shorter to state the things forbidden than the things permitted precisely because most things are permitted and only a few things are forbidden. So think about this. God gave you life. You breathe, you move, you can think, you can create, you can do art, you can do things. You could come out of this room today and do a million different things. And of the million different things you could do when you leave this space, God's saying, just those 10 don't do. Everything else, the rest of the world is yours. Think about the Garden of Eden. Here are these folks in paradise, and God says, you can eat from every single tree in this garden. Just accept that one. But all the rest, the other thousand are for you. See, that's the way it really is. God says no 
very, very few times. It's an incredibly, incredibly short list. Jesus says this, listen, he says, my yoke is easy. Take my yoke upon you. So when he says yoke, I mean, he means like, I want to aim you. I have commands. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Why? For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So today we're going to look at the very first of these commandments, the very first of the Ten Commandments. And it says, you shall have no other gods but me. Now here's the thing. Before we get to that commandment, I want to start where most theologians, most philosophers, and most pastors start. And that is with silverware. I think this is crucial. Now, here's the thing. Do any of you have this experience like me? You go into a restaurant, like, Mr. Palmer, your table is ready. And you go in, and here's the table, and it's all clean, and it's been ironed, and there's a plate and forks, and it's just, it just looks really great. Or how about this? This is even better. Are any of you like me? And I, I, I agree that this is me kind of being like a little kid, but every time I check into a hotel room for the first time, I am so excited the moment I walk in, it's like, ah. Oh, the bedspread is ironed. Everything is in its place. The plate, the doily, the little mint. Everything is in its place, you know? And so I, I come in and I'm always happy the first moment I come into a hotel room. And I think the reason is, is because someone has taken the time to put everything in its place. And it's not cluttered. And here's the thing for me, and see if this is true for you. When everything is in its place, it looks simple. When everything is in its place, it gives me a sense of well-being. When everything is in its place and it's uncluttered, it gives me a sense of peace. Now here's the thing. After my family has stayed in a hotel room for four days, it looks very, very different. As a matter of fact, I come in, I'm like, oh, like it's depressed, it's a complete dump. And here's the thing, it's the same space. And one moment, it's just like, oh, well-being. And next, like, this is a dump. Or think about your friends. You go out to dinner, uh, and you're eating with people, and there's a plane flying overhead, and um, your friends are not the neatest people. You know, so um, you know who you are. And uh, there's several courses, and somebody's uh, spitting up. Little Rodman's son is spitting up, and there's m multiple spills. And then your table, by the end of the meal, looks something like this. Now, I want you to imagine that this table is a picture of your life. and that it's a mess. And I know that for some of you, it doesn't take much imagination. Things are broken and confused and rusted and faded and you can't find anything in the mess. I think for some of us, 
This table represents our health, our bodies. For some of us, this represents our finances. We say, my finances are a mess. For some of us, this represents relationships. Things that started out looking so good and now are broken and twisted and bent. And you just look, what do I do? For some of us here, this table represents your schedule. It represents the way you do life. And I want to tell you guys, sometimes I look at my life and it looks like that. And when I look at my life and it looks like that, the thought that goes through my head is this. How did it ever get to this? And then the second thought that comes after that one is this. Where do I even begin? Do you ever wish you could do this with your life? Just wipe it clean. Just reset the table. Fresh, fresh start. So here's the thing. If you could... The goal is not to have a completely bare table, right? Like if you're going to eat, there's got to be like a tablecloth and a plate and a fork. But like you don't want to clutter it up. So if you were going to do this with your life, what would you start with? Like what would be the first thing you would put on the table? Because if you're going to do the work to do that, you want to be really, really careful because you don't want to mess up again. You don't want to make craziness again. So what would be the first thing? First things first. What would be the center? What would be the center piece? Well, I think there are two ways to approach this, okay? And now I'm going to be a little nerdy, but I came up with two names for this, okay? So here are the two ways I think you can choose. You've, you've made this decision. I'm starting over again. I'm getting rid of all the junk. I'm starting. I'm rebooting. So here are the two ways you can do it. I can go the way of Descartes or the way of Shammah. Okay, so the way of Descartes, some of you have heard of this philosopher Descartes. He was a brilliant thinker, and uh, he, uh, he's the one who like invented Cartesian coordinates. He is this one who looks and says, how do I know what I believe is actually true? How do I know I just didn't in- inherit a bunch of myths? I inherited a bunch of biases and prejudices, and that's not really the way the world actually is. And if I really wanted to know the way the world actually is, what would I do? So he said, I'm going to wipe the slate clean I'm going to get rid of everything I believe, and I'm going to start with a blank table. Okay, well, then i got to start with my first step. What's my first step? And then that's when he said, I think, therefore, I am. That's where he began. He's like, is there even a reality? Is there even a me? Is there anything here? I think, so therefore, there must be a me. Therefore, I am. And he began with that, and he built this huge worldview step by step with logic and reason. Now, here's the thing about him. A, I love this guy. Like, if you read his writings, he is passionate about the truth. He is passionate about life. And he actually believes in God very, very deeply. But here's what I think. I think in starting with reason alone, he introduced a flaw in his reason. Two reasons. The first one is this. How many of you have tried to figure it all out? How many of you keep trying to solve the problems 
and you're driving yourself crazy. How many of you have tried to use your own reason and in the end your brain looks like that table? Some of you heard me say again that old Eagles and Jackson Brown song, take it easy, take it easy, don't let the sound of your own wheels drive you crazy. And sometimes when all we have is our own little reason and we're trying to figure it out and work it out, we drive ourselves crazy and our brain and our thoughts look like that. We just get tangled up in our intellectual underwear. Like we're just tangled up. We don't know what to do. Why? Because man transcends man. There's more to you than you can figure out. So you're trying to figure it out. And again, you know, if you're into algebra, you just like simultaneous equations, but you don't have enough equations to solve for the number of variables you have. And so you end up with this mess. And so that's the first reason that starting with reason alone isn't enough. The second is this. If I'm in my little study trying to figure out what's true, let's see, I'll bring a little chair. So I'm in my little study and I'm going to solve based on reason. And first what I'm going to do is I'm going to mess up Jeremy's stand so he's going to have to push it back up later. So let's say I'm here at my table and I'm going to figure out what's real and true in the world. And I'm trying to figure out if God exists. Well, the problem is there's a lot of stuff out in the big world that I can't deduce on my own. There's things you can only know from experience. Like I only know it's true because it actually happened. I couldn't sit here in my little room and go, oh yeah, that's going to happen. So there's things about reality I can't know just by my reason alone. But here's the second room. Imagine I'm sitting here working and all of a sudden I feel my wife's hand come up and place on my shoulder. She says, how's it going? I love you. That's revelation. See, reason is me figuring out what's true. Revelation is when God places his arm on me. He puts his hand on my shoulder and says, son, I am with you. I am here, and I am for you. See, reason is me trying to figure it out on my own. Revelation is when a person, revelation isn't like, oh, aha, I got it. No, revelation is when another person reveals themselves to you. So he comes up behind me and lets me know he's there. So here's what the ancient Israelites did. Instead of starting with reason, I'm saying they started with the Shema. Now some of you know that that was the call to prayer of the ancient Jews. This idea that they would get up and they would say, Shema, Yisrael, Adonai, Elohino, Adonai, Echad. And what they were trying to say was, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord, is one. And so instead of beginning with reason, they began with revelation. They're saying, hey, hey, there really is a God. And there's only one God. And he's for you. Now here's the thing. Not only is there that beautiful statement, but I didn't actually realize, and those of you who grew up in the church, did you realize that the very next sentence is what Jesus was teaching last week about, they said, what's the greatest command? And God, Jesus says there's two, and the first one is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength. It's right there, right after the Shema. And what's the very next sentence? These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Well, what commandments? We know. Ten commandments, because the Ten Commandments come just 14 verses earlier. So in this little compact scripture, Deuteronomy 6, 4 to 5, what do we find out? God is real. You're to love God, and you're to obey his commands. And the very first commandment is this one. I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And you shall have no other gods before me. That word, that phrase there, you'll have no other gods before me, in the Hebrew, it's literally, you'll have no other gods before my face. So when I make something else a God in my life, when I make something else in my life more important than God, it's like in his face. I'm stuffing it in the face of the maker of heaven and earth. Like, now I got something that's more important than you. Also, though, look what he says. I'm the Lord your God who what? Brought you out of the house of bondage. Now, house of bondage could certainly be you're being oppressed by another people like the Egyptians were doing to the Jews. But think of the other ways you can get into bondage. I can be in bondage to drugs. I can be in bondage to addiction. I can be in bondage to my fear. Like I'm enslaved by my fear. I can be in bondage to my worry. I can be in bondage to my desires. Now here's the thing you got to see. This is so amazing and beautiful. The Ten Commandments are for people who are free. I brought you out of slavery and set you free, so now live this way. We look at the Ten Commandments. Oh, rules and regulations. I don't want rules and regulations. I want to be free. No, this is exactly how free people are to live. This is what real freedom is like. How amazing is this? Okay, so now here's the question for you. Let's say you were going to wipe the table of your life clean. Let's say I was going to begin again. I was going to reset it and go, okay, first things first. First things first. What's going to be the center? What's going to be the centerpiece of my life? What if it was meant to be the first commandment? That before anything else went on the table of my life, I put in this one that there is only one God and that he is my God and that he is real. Now here's the thing. We look at this first commandment and go, this is no big deal because you know we're not like those dumb, primitive, ancient people who believed in all these gods. Like we don't believe in the river God and the moon God and the storm God. Like we're, we're so much more sophisticated than all that. Well, let me say this. Anything that rules my life becomes my God. So if I'm ruled by fear or my desires or my worries, hmm, hmm. Well, and here's the other thing. Turns out those ancient people really weren't dumb at all. They had a sense that there's something supernatural going on in the world. They, they didn't quite have it figured out, but they thought, you know, there's more going on here than meets the eye, and there are things I want in life. Therefore, the most practical, reasonable thing to do is try to appeal to the supernatural to get what I want. So what I did is I created a chart here. I want to show you this chart of the different gods of the ancient world and what people were seeking for, so they pursued that god. So, for example, if I was seeking wisdom or science, I pursued the god of Athena. If I was pursuing the good life, let's party on, wine and food, it was Bacchus. If I was about nature and growth and fertility, it was Baal. Now look at sex. you got three gods there, so you're in really good shape when it comes to sex, right? you got lots of options there. If you're into the environment and the idea that there might be like a life force, the god of Aton. So before we're too quick to make fun of these ancient people, just forget the names of the gods and look at the column on the left and ask yourself, if I'm honest with myself, 
Are these the things I'm actually pursuing? Is this really what's driving my life? Is this really, if I'm really honest with myself, what's most important in my life? Could it be that I am pursuing a false god? You know what I think it is for a lot of people? I know that many of you already call yourselves Christians, you know, and I think this is true in my life. For a lot of us, it's not that we worship some other. Oh, no, I, I worship God, and I'm with Jesus. But the real equation of our life is God and. It's, yeah, 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 I, I'm into Jesus and. And there's something else. And for some of us, it's like even just being responsible is your God. Jesus and. You shall have no other gods but me. No and. That's what God's calling us to. Not because he's a jerk, because he loves us. Listen to what Isaiah 45 says. No, no, let me, let me, before I get there, I want to just get a little nerdy with you, okay? Now, here's the thing. It says, you'll have no other gods but me. And then in Isaiah, he says, I am the Lord your God. There is no other gods than me. Notice that all these gods, they're part of the world. Like, you know, you imagine like superheroes. They're like in creation. They're part of the world. But the maker of heaven and earth is something totally different. The maker of heaven and earth is totally different than all of these gods and all these myths. And here's the best way I can explain it. Imagine that everything you see, so just kind of look around. Look at the people around you. Look how, see how nice they are? Don't they look nice? See them? Say, hey, you look good. Hey, so imagine that everything you see is in a video game. Imagine we're living inside a video game. Matrix. Yes, I love that movie. Imagine you're inside a movie. <laughs> you're inside a video game, which means that any tool I would create is also within the game. So any tool I would create to try and probe what's real about the world, it's within the game. It's all binary bits, ones and zeros. It's all just charge, which is very interesting because God basically said, let it be, as if it was all like this charged universe. But anyway, imagine, I know, I'm a nerd. I love it. Yeah, it just goes and goes and goes. But um, imagine, imagine that that is actually reality. All that we know, all of reality, the whole physical world is running inside this video game. And God is the one who wrote the video game. It's not that God is a character within the world. It's that the world exists within the will of God. See what I mean? It's a totally different existence. It's a totally different thing. The God we're talking about is not these gods. It is the maker of heaven and earth. God is not within the word, world. The world is within the will of God. Thousands of years ago, before we had our fancy science, Isaiah was trying to explain this reality to us. In Isaiah 45, 5, he says this. God speaking, he says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. Any questions? That's it. That's it. You shall have no other gods but me, because I'm the only one who actually is. And then he goes on to say, and I am a jealous God. And then you have all these guys, these fancy smarty pants with all these initials after their names saying, see how petty this Christian God is. How, how could he be jealous? How, how petty for God to be jealous? Well, let me take you back. The Ten Commandments 
turn out to be structured like a treaty, like a covenant, like a covenant between a king and his people or a covenant between two peoples and I make vows and you make vows and it's a covenant and we agree and it's a relationship and this is the one we're most familiar with. Most of us aren't that familiar with covenants and treaties, but we get the idea of a wedding vow. So think about a wedding vow. I take you to be mine. I take you to be mine. One of my favorite lines, forsaking all others, I choose you. Forsaking all other gods, I choose you. If you really love someone, and if they have this covenant relationship with you, and they've made vows to you, you are going to be jealous. I don't mean jealous like rage and creepy jealous. I mean like, don't be messing with anybody else. You're mine, and I'm yours. Of course I'm going to be jealous for your love. Of course I'm going to be jealous because you are mine and I'm yours. And I've made this vow to you and you've made this vow to me. That's what it means when God is a jealous God. It's because I love you. You are mine. Don't follow these false things that are ways that are no ways at all that mess you up and wreck your life. And the truth is, if you think about all the songs we just sang, like, you know, Sonata is just kicking it out today and she's singing and we're singing If you really love somebody, you can't tell them enough times that you love them. You can never say it enough times. The Ten Commandments are this gift from God. And it turns out that the ancient Israelites would say the Shema and they'd say the Ten Commandments every day. Every day in repetition, Shema Israel, right? They'd say Shema and then they'd recite the Ten Commandments. Now, is that because they were superstitious? Is that because they were religious? No, that was because they knew the table always gets cluttered. They knew that every day the table gets messed up. That every day I tend to drift away from the love of my life. That every day I tend to drift away from the ways that, that make me live And so I need to remind myself again and again, there is a God and he's real and he's come for me and he's given me a way to live and these are the way to live. And so they would wipe the table clean and reset it every day. So here's my question for you. Will you make God the centerpiece of your day and then tomorrow make him the centerpiece of that day And then the next day, make him the centerpiece of that day so that he becomes the center of your life, the centerpiece of your life. Do you want balance in your life? Then center it on God. Now think of a seesaw. Think how fun a seesaw is. All right, uh, I got science majors here. How many fulcrums are there on a seesaw? One. What happens if you add another fulcrum? It don't move. You will have no other gods but me because if you add one more, it doesn't move. It's locked, it's rigid, it's frozen. Only God and God alone, nothing else. He says to us, no other gods but me. 
So our lives were meant to turn upon, to be centered upon the God who is. Clear the table. Brothers and sisters, clear the table and begin again with God. So in closing, I just want to share with you lyrics uh, from a song that have been really actually a very important part of my life. And they go like this. Changes in your life begin with changes in you. Forsaking all others, let Jesus make you new. Time to turn away from all the ways that make you lose. Time to obey the one who lets you choose. Let's pray.